recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Beginning of Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 24th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today we are going to discuss what is white in a world of bastards, and how white nationalists and identity Christians alike can properly cope with ethnicity in Europe and America. And, and we will also discuss how Christian identity Christians should interact and what they should expect from white nationalists. Once again, here on Christianity Europe, I have Sven Longshanks to assist me in, in, in advancing this discussion. Hello, Sven. Praise Yahweh. Hi, Bill. Praise Yahweh. Uh, thank you for uh, making this program and, in, and inviting me to help out with it again. I hope people um, get something from it and, and learn something from it. I think they uh, usually do. And it should be a good program with what, um, what we're going to discuss. Uh, it's, it's a pretty important issue, I think, really, what, what is white and um, what's happened to some of our white nations that we're going to go into uh, as we get on with the program. So I'll let you carry on with your intru- introduction, Bill. Well, well, right, exactly. And also how we should um, react to what, what has happened to those nations. There are constantly squabbles because of what's happened to those white nations. There are constantly squabbles among white nationalists and even among identity Christians, who I consider the epitome of, of white or Caucasian nationalism as to what is white. And while the white race has a diversity of subtypes that do indeed seem to be legitimately and historically white, race mixing at the fringes, mostly in Southern Europe and in Central Asia, and later in America, has often caused many people to accept blurred distinctions of what is white. And outright mongrels, as if they were white. As an overreaction to that problem, on the other side of the coin, the so-called Nordicists have come only to accept blonde and blue-eyed, yellow-haired, fair-skinned types as white, which is a very narrow view that has no real historical validity. From all of the Germanic literature, which I've read, I've come to understand that amongst the early Germans, as well as the Romans, a brunette, a broom or brunette, was originally a person having brown or sometimes black hair, more often than not, brown eyes, and a relatively, and I mean relative because it's not a dark complexion, but a relatively dark complexion, meaning relative among white people. Not everyone with brown or black hair fall into the brunette category, and we don't necessarily need to categorize all white people as blondes, brunettes, or redheads. However, That doesn't mean, if they don't fall into the brunette category, that they are blondes or redheads either. On the other hand, a blonde could have not only flaxen or golden yellow hair, but even light auburn or light brown hair, having 
fair skin, and light-colored eyes. The Romans had similar distinctions to the Germans in their language, which they carried over into their family names. One um, noble, distinguished Roman plebeian family was named the Fulvies, from the Roman word, from the Latin word fulvus, which means brown, tawny, or bronze-colored. The popular Roman given name Rufus is from a word meaning red. These terms applied originally brunette, blonde, fulvus, rufus. These terms applied originally to white people exclusively and were used to describe not merely hair color, but general appearance. The reduction of the terms to describe hair color only, in my opinion, is just another Jew media trick that has dumbed us down and desensitized us as to the acceptable racial characteristics of our own people. Blondes aren't merely people with yellow hair. In that rate, at any rate, in that instance, a Negro could be considered a blonde. Oh, she's a bottle blonde. No, a nigger can never be a blonde. A blonde is a fair-skinned, light-eyed, light-haired European person, period. I'm going to um, do a few examples of the diversity among whites from some of the classical historians. Class, Tacitus in his Agricola in chapter 11, Tacitus wrote, who the first inhabitants of Britain were, whether natives or immigrants, is open to question. One must remember that we are dealing with barbarians, but their physical characteristics vary, and the variation is suggestive. The reddish hair and large limbs of the Caledonians proclaim a German origin. The swarthy faces of the Salores, the tendency of their hair to curl, and the fact that Spain lies opposite all lead one to believe that Spaniards, and these, he's talking about white Spaniards, Spaniards crossed in ancient times and occupied that part of the country. The peoples nearest to the Gauls likewise resemble them. Now, of course, Tacitus was not properly a historian. He was not educated in the classical histories and was apparently ignorant of or simply ignored the ancient accounts of both the Phoenicians and Trojans in Britain, which his contemporaries were aware of, although it is not probable that all of the early Britons are derived from Phoenicians and Trojans alone. There were other Germanic tribes, such as the Kimri in Britain, four centuries before Tacitus. So Tacitus, who was rather a chronicler of his own times, in both the Agricola and in his accounts of the tribes of Germany, the Germania, while he has been esteemed, while those works have been esteemed as works of great value for many centuries, he only wrote simple observations from his personal experience, which is valuable for that reason, rather than being a, a historiographer. This, these Salores whom Tacitus writes about are um, 
have their most famous ancient citizen in the person of Caractacus, or Caradoc, who was the famous chieftain captured by Rome in the days of Claudius. And they were renowned for their bravery and their ferocity in battle. Tacitus imagined the Iberians, as well as the tribes who are today known as the Welsh, to have darker skin and a tendency for curly hair. But darker skin is relative. Darker skin does not, does not mean that they were dark-skinned the way we see skin today in a world saturated with Negroes, Arabs, and other bastards. In the white world, a brunette was a person with only slightly darker skin than the fair-skinned Irish and Englishmen. The, the ruddy type of Irish and English that we see that sunburn real easy, that they're the fairest of, of the white people, and people that were considered swarthy were only slightly darker and tanned only a little easier. And that type is prominent in Europe and America, and they are all white people. Examples, uh, I pulled up two um, recent examples of people that would be considered swarthy in that respect. And I don't know if they're the best examples, but Catherine Zeta-Jones is a true brunette. Sean Connery is a true brunette. They're both Welsh. The same types exist amongst the Germans, the original Spaniards, the Irish, the Scots, and, and even the Scandinavians have their brunettes. That doesn't make them black. It doesn't make them mixed. It's only a part of, of the um, historical gene pool of the white race. And that can be seen all the way back to ancient Greece. In, um, in Strabo first, Strabo, the first century geographer and historian, wrote that the Bretons were tall and fair like the Germans. He was speaking in general terms, but had much darker hair. He said of the Gauls of Germany, because they were all considered Gauls or Galatians, the Gauls of Germany were generally taller, fairer, and more yellow-haired than the Gauls of France. And Strabo explains that that's why the Germans were called Germans, because Germanus means authentic, and he imagined that the Romans considered the taller, more yellow-haired Gauls to, to be the authentic Gauls, which certainly is not necessarily true. Euripides, Euripides, the Greek tragic poet of the 5th century BC, in his play entitled Andromache at line 881, depicts a Thessalian chorus leader. Now, the Thessalians, or the people of Thessaly, Thessaly being a district of central Greece, north of Achaia and south of Macedonia and Thrace. Thessaly was settled in ancient times by Danans, by Dorians, by Ionians, and by Phoenicians, who were all considered Greek, in the historic period, in the Hellenistic period, and even in, in, in the period of the tragic poets. They were all considered Greeks. The, um, 
The chorus leader in the play Andromache says, look, here comes a stranger, a man of different hue from ourselves, hastening towards us with speedy step. Now, the chorus leader being a Thessalian, the person that the chorus leader was speaking about was characterized as being the famed Orestes, the son of the legendary Agamemnon, the chief of the the Danan Greeks who invaded and conquered the Trojans. The Danans, throughout the poetry of Homer and and later times, were were typically described as being fair-skinned or red-haired or golden-haired. And the only thing that could account for the Thessalian seeing a Danon as somebody of a different hue from ourselves would be hair color or skin tone. And this certainly seems to refer to skin tone because hair is not mentioned specifically. The people of early Thessaly may have been from one of a number of tribes. It doesn't really matter who Euripides specifically had in mind, and he doesn't tell us. Both King Solomon from the Bible and Hector of Troy, the Prince of Troy, at the time of the fall of the Trojans. As Homer described him in, I believe it's book 18 of the Iliad, both men were described as having ivory or fair skin and raven hair. Yet Solomon's father David was described as being red-headed, ruddy, and fair. Alexander the Great, the Macedonian, while the Danans were typically portrayed as being yellow-haired or golden-haired and having fair skin, Alexander the Great was always portrayed in Greek art as having brown hair and brown eyes. Many of the um, first-century mosaics found in the various Christian assembly halls of the Greeks, all the way back from the first and first century, depict people with brown hair and brown eyes, or with yellow hair and brown eyes, and so on. There's a diversity of types in the white race from the beginning. But the ancient Greek view of eye color is a strange one. And I don't know if we'll ever stop debating it. According to the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon, the ninth edition, the chief eye colors in men, as they say, according to Aristotle's History of Animals and Generations of Animals, are ahigopas, or ahigopas, which means goat eye. And goats are generally esteemed to have yellow eyes. The next eye color Aristotle lists is Glaucus, which is a famous epithet for Athena. And Athena was originally a Phoenician idol, which meant gray-eyed or blue-gray-eyed. And and scholars argue about that. I lean towards Glaucus being gray-eyed, because Greeks had other words for blue. We'll get to them. Melis is a Greek word for dark or swarthy, and of eyes, it only meant 
dark-eyed. That's all it meant. And the fourth color mentioned by Aristotle is carapus, which means bluish-gray-eyed, just like Glaucus. Now, I lean towards carapus as meaning blue-eyed, and Glaucus as meaning gray-eyed, but scholars have debated that for a long time. Persons with um, <clears throat> the blue-gray eye color, carapus, are also sometimes described as phthinodes, and I'm not certain of the meaning of that. Aside from these, there's another word, kawanis, which is dark blue, and it was sometimes used of the eyes, but not to describe eye color. Rather, it was used to describe what we call glaucoma. Now, the Greek view of color is um, weird. Let me say weird in, in other places as well, because Homer quite often used the epithet of wine-dark sea to describe the Asian sea and the Mediterranean. So if we saw the world through Homer's eyes, we might think that the sea was purple, because that's what wine-dark would remind me of. Perhaps he had white wine in mind. Somehow I doubt it. Green is not in the list, evidently, of Greek eye color, even though there are plenty of red-headed Irishmen who can be said to have descended from the, um, the Malaysians of Anatolia, who the Greeks were very well familiar with. Their famous philosopher Thales was a Phoenician from Miletus, and the Danans, the Tuatha de Danon. And there's plenty of Irishmen with that bloodline that have red hair and green eyes, but green is not in the list of Greek eye colors given by Aristotle, unless perhaps green is what the Greeks meant by goat-eyed. Brown is not in the list, unless that is what the Greeks meant by dark-eyed. But perhaps by goat-eyed, the Greeks meant a lighter shade of brown. So, I mean, these things can be debated forever, but that's the way Aristotle saw the eye colors of man, and that's the way he described them. From all of the um, Germanic literature I've read, a brunette is originally someone not only with black hair and brown eyes, but also slightly darker skin or brown hair and brown eyes, and slightly darker skinned. It's easier tanning. While a blonde originally had light-colored hair, which could be yellow or golden yellow or flaxen, but could also be light brown or light auburn, and fair skin with light-colored eyes, which could be blue. These terms originally apply to white people exclusively. And, and today, and Sven and I were talking before the program, today, when people think swarthy, they think of a nigger, or a suntanned Sicilian, or, or a suntanned Portuguese, or, or a, an Arab from Saudi Arabia, or, or, a, or, or a darkened Egyptian. That's not what swarthy means in a European context speaking only of the whites of Europe. You don't have to be much darker than the fair-skinned Irishman to be considered swarthy. Benjamin Franklin 
in in his letters, and and this is um, cited and quoted in various papers at Christogenia, Benjamin Franklin described all Europeans as swarthy except the fairest people of the British Islands and the Saxon Germans. He considered the Swedes as being swarthy. He considered the, the, the Spaniards and the Italians and, and, and the French and everyone else as being swarthy as well. That was the world in the eyes of Benjamin Franklin. So he only considered the fairest of the British and the Germans to be ruddy and rosy and, and white. When, when Arabs came into Europe, especially Southern Europe, of course, and began mixing with the local populations, which they conquered and lorded over for quite some time. And, and Arabs ruled the southern two-thirds of the Iberian Peninsula for 700 years, and Arabs ruled most of the islands of the Mediterranean for lengthy periods of time. When King Alfred made his own pilgrimage to Jerusalem, in the 10th century, I believe it was, he had written about staying in the Sicilian hillside and being entertained by Arab sheiks because Arabs were ruling Sicily at that time. It, it's um, in, in southern Italy, Barry for centuries, a, a seaport city in southeast Italy was used as a port for Arab pirates. That there's um, no doubt that the Arabs did serious um, damage, if you will, to the white gene pool, not only in the Iberian Peninsula, Sicily, southern Italy, but also along the coast of southern France, and especially in Anatolia, which is really just bastardized Turkey today, and in Greece, and all the way up into the Balkans. And this can't be, historically, it can't be disputed, and whites cannot, real whites, cannot turn a blind eye to what's happening in these nations and what's happened historically in these nations. They can't be accepted as white simply because people come from some European nation. Now, there may well be, and I believe there are, whites remaining in each of those nations, but we have to distinguish the peoples that come from those places on a case-by-case basis. And to a real nationalist, this is only a secondary subject. It shouldn't be primary. And I will get to the reasons for that at the conclusions of this program. In the meantime, I will defer to Sven. Hi, Bill. Yeah, yeah I am. Um, that's uh, really interesting, the stuff that you've been, you've been covering there. Uh, I think one point that you, that you haven't brought up yet is this Mediterranean race, because as you were saying, there are different types of, of white. You could almost say that there are different breeds of white people. You've got the different nations. I mean, I even noticed this when I was in the Baltic states. The, the Baltic people there had a certain look to them. They were all white, but they had a certain look. Every second or third one of them had a very similar type of nose, uh, and not like a Jewish nose. It was a very well-proportioned, angled nose, like a good breeding sort of nose. 
And I can recognise this and, and see this in them. And in Britain, I can tell people who are Scottish, they have a certain look. I can tell people who are Welsh, they have a certain look. But they're all definitely white. It's not because they've got some, uh, some adulteration with their blood. Now, Lothrop Stoddard and others that studied race um, when it was still acceptable to study it, uh, they decided that there were three different types of, of white race, the Nordic, Mediterranean, and, and Alpine. And Lothrop Stoddard says that, what, and this is a quote of his that I've got here, we must realize that the original Mediterranean stock has been greatly modified during its long history so that it has come to vary widely at different times and in different places. Now, he claims that the only original Mediterranean stock left anywhere is in Wales and in Ireland. And the, the, the Welsh that I see, they are very Nordic looking. I mean, they're not blonde, but they've got the, uh, they've got the long, long heads, they've got the, the Nordic skull shape, but they're just uh, slightly less in stature to the tall Nordics. They've got sort of less of a height. And, and Lothrop Stoddart says that these Mediterranean types are smaller. They've got less, they've got less of a stature. And, and he calls them swarthy. And I think this swarthy, what he's meaning, is swarthy relative to other white people, like you've just been describing there. Um, and before this program started, you pointed out Catherine Zeta-Jones to me. And that is a very common sort of Welsh look. But I would never have described her as being swarthy. But you you say that, that's, to, go on. When, when you have nothing in the world but these fair-skinned, very white, easily sunburning Irish types, and, and then you have these darker, um, more easily tanning brunettes like Catherine Zeta-Jones and, and people that are, are considered swarthy like her, when you only have those two groups, then you could say that Catherine Zeta-Jones is swarthy. And, and that's the way that Benjamin Franklin used the word swarthy. And, and that's the way historically the word brunette should be used. But, of course, Catherine Zeta-Jones lo looks like paper when you fill the world with these mutts and these Negroes. Then, of course, she's white. We know she's white. But when we say swarthy historically, we're talking about on a scale of white, right? So it's so a yeah. completely different perspective. When you take away all the Negroes, the bastards that, that didn't exist in Benjamin Franklin's world, then Benjamin Franklin can call the Swedes swarthy, perhaps, compared to the, um, the, the lily-white um, people in the south of England. Oh, yeah, I think it's it's obviously to do with this uh, how well they tan, and you would think that the, the ones that would be tanned would be the ones that were outside doing the physical work, which they say the, the, the Mediterraneans were doing the physical work, and, and the Nordic ones were uh, uh, the aristoc the aristocracy of the society. So they wouldn't have been outside working in the sun, so they weren't built for that. Whereas the Mediterranean ones were; they could get a suntan, they wouldn't burn in the sun. And at the same time, you've got also um, Othrop Stellar talks about in Rome. And when he's talking about in Rome, he's talking about uh, the, the Mediterraneans being this plebeian group 
and the Nordics being the aristocratic group. And he's not talking about the Mediterraneans now, because if you look at the Mediterraneans now in, in Greece and um, in Spain or in, in Italy, a large portion of them are mixed, unfortunately, from this, this Turkish um, invasion of them and uh, the slaves there and in Spain. And I've got um, some more quotes from Lothrop Stoddard, which, which show that, which I'll possibly use later on. But, so as you say, you have to look at them individually. But the really sad thing is that, that, that these countries were invaded by these Arabs, and they kept up their, their Christian faith. But un, unfortunately, they were um, a lot of them were, were raped, basically. Uh, they were even special... Um, uh, there were special abortionists, women that would carry out abortions that um, were not, they weren't actually made into saints but they were held up as heroes by the um, Eastern Orthodox Church for doing this because they, they didn't want to allow this race mixing to happen but it did, it did happen and you have got large portions of them now that, that are not white, you have got white people there as you say, you've got to look at it as an individual basis but there are large portions of them that aren't and when people think nowadays of, of the Mediterranean type, unfortunately, a lot of the time, that's the type that they're thinking of. They're thinking of, of the type that's, that's already been mixed with, with Turks and has got Turkish blood. Or they're looking at the, at the um, brown-skinned Spaniards with the, with the wide eyes. And there, there are subtle bits that you can see which, which alert you to this, like the shape, shape of the head. I mean, a, a white man's eye level should be half of his head. The other, the top half of his head should be forehead. And if you look at the Negro, the, the Negro, two-thirds of the Negro's face is face. It's from eyes down to the chin. And then he's got a third of a space, which is the top of his head. Whereas a white man, it's half and half. And the, because the Negro has a smaller brain. And the so he has a smaller brain, brain pattern, it's just like the shape of his skull. And where the Arabs have got this Negro blood in them, where they then bred with these uh, Mediterraneans, you've got, you've got this shape to some of these Mediterranean peoples. And another way you can tell is with the eyes. Occasionally, um, you'll get, uh, like, the eyes will open up and they'll be round, rather than, like a Negro, it's like bug-eyed, white, you know, round, circular eyes that they sometimes have. You see this in some of these people as well. So you get these odd flashes of it. You also get the jaw. Like um, a white man should have a, have a, a strong, square jawline. And when you, when you see a, a pointed jaw, it's coming down into a point like a triangular point. Again, that's, that's a hint of there being Arab blood there with it. And, and so the, people think that, um, people will say that the, that the Greeks of today were, this, were the same as the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, they weren't. And all the writings describe them as being different. And people, I've had people say to me, oh, this is all just nonsense that's talked about on Stormfront. But it's not nonsense that's talked about on Stormfront. It, it was written about by all the um, racial scientists. And I'll just read a, a quote here, which is Lothrop Stoller talking about um, the Nordic aristocracy in Rome. And this explains these two different types. These are two different types of white people that he's talking about here. Quote, It is interesting to observe how sharp was the consciousness of racial differences between the two orders of society in early Rome. The patricians, as Nordic aristocracies have always done, long kept the purity of their blood by stern prohibition of intermarriage with the plebeians, thus maintaining their hold upon the state and impressing their spirit so deeply upon Roman institutions 
and customs that their ideals persisted long after the patrician class had lost its Nordic character. This nature of the old Roman spirit needs to be emphasized because it has been so widely misunderstood. The prevailing idea is that the early Romans were small, dark people, in other words, Mediterraneans. And he's talking about them being dark as in uh, relevant to other white people here. In other words, Mediterraneans. This is a serious error because it misinterprets the very source of Latin civilization. As a matter of fact, a glance at Roman ideals and institutions shows that these were patently Nordic with Alpine modifications. The truth is that down to the fall of the Republic, when Rome ceased to be racially Roman, the spirit of Roman society was emphatically un-Mediterranean. To think of the stern, practical, unimaginative Roman patrician as a typical Mediterranean is nothing short of ludicrous. It would have been clean against the Mediterranean racial soul, which, wherever found in anything like racial purity, whether in ancient Greece, Greece or in modern Ireland, is always basically the same. To find the Mediterranean spirit in ancient Italy, we must look not to Rome, but to those states of southern Italy and Sicily, which were Rome's early rivals. Here, indeed, we discover the Mediterranean soul at its best, its artistic gifts, its hot emotions, its quick imagination, its love of form, color, and life. Here also we find that extreme individualism and political instability, which have ever been Mediterranean weaknesses and which brought southern Italy under Roman rule. Close quote. And after that, he goes on to say about how Italy and Sicily then got taken over by the Arabs and their blood got corrupted. And ever since then, they've been incapable of uh, actually coming up with anything. You've, you've still got part of Italy, which is, which is okay, which is the, um, uh, I think it's the southern part, which is where Benito Mussolini was. But the Sicilian part and uh, Spain and especially Portugal, they, they you know, they, they are so far mixed, so heavily mixed with the Arabs and with the Negroes that they're not actually capable of, of producing anything. And when he's talking about Mediterraneans there, he's talking about these white Mediterraneans. And this other class of people that he's talking about, the Alpines, they are today's Slavs. And the, the difference between the Alpine and the Nordic is the Nordic had oval heads, an oval skull, a long-shaped skull, but the Alpine, okay. yeah, and the Alpine had a, had a round skull. Go on, Bill. They were more brachiocephalic or round-headed. I agree with a lot of what Stoddard says in principle, but I would rather get my terms and distinguishments from the scripture, the early scripture, which is historical, and the classical histories. And, and in my worldview, the round-headed Europeans are the Gepetites, who in the Bible and in, in um, history can be seen, the Ionians, the people of Tarshish, the, the um, Thracians, and the Mescovites or, or, or the Meshech, Meshechites, who, who gave us the Eastern Slavs later in history, uh, along with the um, people of Tumalsk, or, or Tubal, or as Herodotus called them, the Tibani, who were always with the, the Moschi, or the Meseki. That the, um, those people are the Jepethite tribes of, of Scripture. And I 
sincerely believe that the round the, the roundheadedness comes from early speciation of our race. And I'm going to talk about speciation again a little a little further in this program, where the so-called Nordic type, the Germanic type, is the original Shemitic type, which is represented in earliest Europe by the Lydians and, and the Etruscans, but they had and, and the Trojans and the Romans, who come from the same branch, they had always intermingled early on with those Jepethite peoples. And, and they're the, um, the, the people that brought us the Trojan and later the Roman civilization. It, it was that Stoddard would say they were Nordics and Mediterraneans. I would say fine, but they were Shemites and Jepethites. And the Jepethites, the Slavic, brought us the Slavic people. That can be demonstrated in early ancient history and in, in conjunction with biblical scripture. And those Jepethite people had, at a, um, the Slavs had, in the early centuries of the Christian era, forced their way down the Danube River Valley to, to populate um, what, what was once known as Germania, and this is shortly after the fall of Rome, in the centuries after the fall of Rome. And, and um, those Slavs are round-headed, just like their forerunners in, in the Mediterranean area, because they were all Jepetites. So, so I'm not, I, I would agree with Stoddard on principle, but I have different terms, that's all. And, and that's, I, I don't see that as a problem. It's very clear that there were um, brown-haired, brown-eyed people throughout the Mediterranean, as well as blonde, gray-eyed, and blonde, blue-eyed types. And I wouldn't um, divide them very, cle very clearly the way Stoddard does along the lines of aristocracy and, and the lower classes. I don't think that's the way it worked. The, the Trojans that moved to Italy and, and founded Rome were, were of the Nordic type, and they were naturally of, of, of the arist aristocratic class in Rome because they were the founders of that civilization. The, um, the German peoples followed from the same stock later into Europe, and, and that's where he gets his Nordic um, label from, but that doesn't mean that they originated in the north, and, and that viewpoint is quite ridiculous. So we, Stoddard and I, would agree in principle on the characteristics of these various European peoples and have our own different explanations of their origins. Mine is based on a combination of scripture and classical history, where Stoddard is coming from a more agnostic or atheistic angle and trying to base his explanation on natural science. So we, we could see where we agree, and we only really disagree in terms. Well, one of the things I, I would say is that I think this Mediterranean race that he comes up with, I think it's just a, it's just a smaller version of the Nordic race. And he, he's saying, you, know, you look, look at the Irish today, and look at uh, Irish culture, and then compare that to uh, Spain or, or Greece. You know, there's a big difference here, but you can see the, that the Irish are artistic and musical, um, and they have like a long history which they've managed to keep. Um, they haven't sort of everything hasn't fallen into ruins like like it has in Greece. 
And so you've got a difference there. And I, I, I think the um, this what he calls this Mediterranean type. I think they're just it's just an early version of of this Nordic type because they've still got the same um, the same type of skull and the hair color and the eye color. It's a pretty superficial thing. It's just on the outside, but the the skeletons are, are, are pretty. The skull shape is the same. It's just that they're slightly smaller um, version of them. So I, I don't see the Mediterranean as being that different from from the Nordic. I think they, I think um, he came up with this to try and di- differentiate between them, and also because of this type that we've got now, which is. Uh, in the main, it's quite heavily mixed. Now, I've had pe- I've had people say that um, you know that there isn't this mixing in Greece, but uh, also in this this Stoddard book, it's been updated. I'll just read um, uh, a couple of quotes here, which which is study a DNA study a study published in the journal Tissue Antigens HLA genes in Macedonians and the Sub-Saharan origin of the Greeks. It's from 2001. Uh, A. Arneo Zilena et al. reported that the Greeks are found to have a substantial relatedness to sub-Saharan Ethiopian people, which separate them from other Mediterranean groups. Both Greeks and Ethiopians share quasi-specific DRB1 alleles, such as, and then he gives a long list of numbers, and his genetic distances are closer between Greeks and Ethiopian sub-Saharan groups than to any other Mediterranean group. And finally, Greeks cluster with Ethiopians, sub-Saharans, in both neighbor adjoining dendrograms and correspondence analyses. The conclusion is that part of the Greek genetic pool may be sub-Saharan, and that the admixture has occurred at an uncertain but ancient time. And there's another one, a study published in the Human Biology Journal in 1994 reported the presence of uh, HPAI morph 1 sequence, which is a mongoloid marker, introduced either through slavery or through the Ottoman occupation of the Balkans. And finally, according to a study published by the American Journal of Human Genetics, why chromosome lineages trace diffusion of people and languages in southwestern Asia, conducted by Louis Quintan Merkley et al., the Semitic marker group, haplogroup J, runs at 28% in Greece. And their Semitic marker group is obviously an Arab marker group. So you've got all this scientific evidence there which shows that a large portion of this, this group of people that, that have been classed as Mediterranean, apart from in Ireland and in Wales, are in actual fact, they, what it is, is admixture with another race entirely. It's admixture with Arabs and admixture with Negroes. And this has caused a lot of confusion. Let me say, I have a lot of confusion. Okay. Go on. Let me say a few things about DNA science, okay? But because some of it's valid in, in the sense of generalities, but in the sense of specificity, spec, uh, of specifics, let me put it that way, it, it's terrible. It's terrible. DNA is a Jewish-influenced science, which often, sometimes it is a science, some of it's valid, but often it's not science at all. It's just pure speculation. The tracing of ancestors, 
for instance, and this is where it speculates the most, the tracing of the origins and ancestors of people through extrapolations of so-called and supposed mutations in mitochondrial DNA, that, that gives us the out-of-Africa theory. They piece together through that, and it's all pure hocus-pocus. It's all pure bullshit. DNA scientists, here's their biggest fault. They attempt to assess genetic profiles according to the current demographics without understanding the actual and historical movements of people or the past patterns of conquest and miscegenation. Most DNA scientists don't know wit about history. In the meantime, nobody has the DNA of any significant collection of the ancestors of ancient whites in order to properly assess what the original white genetic structure should look like as far as the possibility of variation in our species, in our genes. The populations of Asia, Africa, Southern Europe, and the Middle and Near East have all suffered vast miscegenation in the last 5,000 years. Rather, the Jew would take advantage of an incomplete picture of our genetic history in order to convince us that somehow we're all mixed. And what difference does it make since we all came out of Africa anyway? And, and that's how the Jews like to continually inform us. So when we tread on DNA evidence, we have to be very careful. First, to make sure we are getting raw data. And second, to make sure that it is properly, properly assessed according to the facts that we know from ancient history. And I'm going to use as an example your, 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 the assessment you just read of the Greeks. Now, I don't think that most of the Greeks are Greek. I think most of the Greeks that we know today are mixed with Arab and Turkic blood. And the Turks themselves are of um, Mongol slash Arab slash Caucasian blood. The Turks have been bastards for, for 3,000 years. And, and the Arabs, the word Arab in Hebrew is a word that means mixed. Genetic scientists today see the world through the Jewish lens of history where Shemites, the original Shemites, according to the Jewish version of history, are Arabs and Jews. And that's bullshit. Jews are a mixed bastard race, and Arabs are a mixed bastard race, and the original Shemites were white. So DNA science is extremely politically correct. Now, the Greeks had a huge presence, and this is not very well known, but it can be demonstrated in history. The Greeks, through the Ptolemies of Egypt, had a huge presence in Ethiopia at an early time. So rather than the genes going from Ethiopia to Greece, why couldn't they have gone from Greece to Ethiopia, the genes that Ethiopians and Greeks have in common? I would say that history shows that the genes went from Greece to Ethiopia, not from Ethiopia to Greece. Now, that's just 
a, a, a valid historical argument, but it's just an argument because it doesn't really matter to me one way or the other. Anybody who knows about ancient history understands that the original Kushites were white, and they mixed with the Nubians, and they were evidently overrun by the Nubians, just like Egypt was overrun by the Nubians. But 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, Ethiopians were all white. Now, the Arab presence in Greece is very clear because the Greeks were ruled over by the Turks for 500 years. 500 years in the Islamic system where race mixing is encouraged and racism in Islam is forbidden. And the Greeks were ruled over by those people for 500 years. Now, I understand that religion can be a good defense against race mixing to an extent. But the original Greeks, when you can take the, um, the Byzantine art, let's take Byzantine art, and let's look at all these pictures that the Byzantines drew. All these Byzantine saints and, and, and popes and, and famous figures in their art, they would all fit right into Dublin, Munich, Hamburg today. The, the, the American Midwest, they'd fit right in, except for their language, right? These Greeks of today don't look anything like those beautiful Nordic-looking people in the Byzantine art. Nothing. That they're, um, that they're mostly brachiocephalic, and they're swarthy, they're beyond swarthy, they're practically niggers. And they have, a lot of them have kinky hair or hair that's verges on kinky. They're not white, they're Arabs. Now, are there some white Greeks left? I've seen some blonde-haired, blue-eyed Greeks that swore to me they were Greek, and, and I believe they were, and I accepted them as white because they sure as hell looked it. But are most Greeks white? Absolutely not. They're Arabs. And, and the Arab blood, we see how it got into Greece historically, which agrees with your DNA evidence, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I think, I think the, the, that evidence just bears that out by saying that it's sub-Saharan. The Ethiopian bit, I mean, that could be the sub-Saharan that they're calling Ethiopian, or it could be exactly as you said, from... Um, way back when when it was white and then the blacks went in there mixed in with it and then took away some of some of their genes this is why i think they, they use the dna and say well we all come from africa because you've got like a little bit of white you've got white gene signatures in with these negroes so we must have come from them but it, it's from where it's all amalgamated in the past as you say with the race mixing um incidents that happened in the past with the migrations and then they, they look at that they test them today and say oh well that means that you must have come from there because they've got some of these white genes in there, so you must be descended from them. It's, uh, and besides that, on top of that, you've also got um, the fact that everything is made up from the same ingredients, as it were. Like DNA itself is, is, like, is a code, and it's looking at various letters, and it's just the way that the letters are arranged. And everyone has the same, same letters in their DNA code. It's just the way that, the way that they're arranged. So everyone's made up of the same ingredients anyway, but it doesn't mean that everybody's part of the same kinds. And this could go into your evolution. 
interesting. But another point with the DNA is it's good for pointing out the fact that there are specific races. And the, the chap that first cracked the, the code, I think he said this, and he was completely ostracized for it. And uh, they t I think they took his prize away from him and, and silenced him in the media because his DNA studies were showing that there were these specific races. And, and, and they didn't all come from one original part. But they've obviously tried to silence that side of it and are now trying to push their, everybody comes from Africa. And the other, the other point to make, I think, is when you have an individual DNA test, uh, it, it's only 95 to 99% accurate. So you've got that bit there that they could have made a mistake. And exactly as you say, where are the old people from the past that you can take to, to have as your control? To say, well, this is what you're related to. Well, they, can't, they can't actually do that. And you've got adaptation, not evolution, but adaptation. So you, the, the actual white people back then would have looked just slightly different from us now because there would have been a, a breeding over the years would have produced adaptation. Certain traits would have caused certain people to have had more offspring. You would have had a lot of people that looked like the kings and, and the nobles, I think. So there is slight adaptation over the years. So they can't say for certain. But when, you know, the, the point of using that evidence there is because it does bear out what, what's being said and because people have tried to say that, that this didn't happen and that um, this Mediterranean uh, a group now are just as white as everybody else, but, but they're not. Individuals of them may still be white, but as a whole, they can't be looked on as white. They're part of Europe, they're European nations, it's awful what happened to them, absolutely dreadful. And what we should be doing is kicking all the Arabs and the non-whites out of Europe because of, just because they're here. And also, you know, surely we should want some kind of vengeance for what they've done to these peoples that used to be white, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Greeks, the, East, the Greeks, it used to be all of them 100% white. And look what these arrows have done to them, and now we're letting them come in, come into Europe. You know, this is what we should be doing, but at the same time, we should not be encouraging any breeding between Mediterraneans and and Nordics or Southern uh, Europeans with Northern Europeans, because you're just going to introduce, you run the risk of introducing that damage that's been done to the Southern Europeans. You run the risk of introducing that into the Northern Europeans. They're doing the same to Northern European ones. Come on, Bill. Throughout the medieval period, if you study the history of the Crusades, that the white princes of Europe were always divided over whether that they should go and um, reconquer formerly Christian lands, because everything was phrased in religious terms back then, from the invading Muslims. And and should they have? Well, well it's, it, it's easy to second-guess them, right? But pitifully, most of the time when they did go to the Middle East, it was only for their own enrichment or they were, were manipulated by the Jews to enrich the Jews or, or by the Catholic popes to enrich the Catholic popes. So they never really um, had any durable stand at defending on racial terms Europe against the Arab and the Turkish invaders.
It, it, it never worked. And, and a few times, they even rather looted each other instead. I mean, the Normans went to Constantinople and, and looted Constantinople instead of fighting with the, the Turks. And, and that happened in the 14th century. So, so our race is very often its own worst enemy. And it certainly was in the face of the, um, the, the Arab conquests of southern Italy and, and the, um, the Turkish conquests of, of Eastern Europe. This is this has gone on for you know it's it's, it's gone on for a, for a long time. It, it's when to go to talk about when you were saying about um, uh, colours of the eyes and the, and uh, the colours of the hair and it, and it being different. I think the, the castes in India, you know, they used to have the castes, and that's a, and people say, well, that's because they had the, the blacks and the. Uh, and the non-whites were the lower caste, and they were the slaves. I don't think they were. I think they they did it because they, they were so pure about everything. Each one of those castes started off originally as being pure white, and uh, so the, the castes, the kingly caste, the priestly caste, the warrior caste, and the labour caste, they they were all white. And so this colour they had, it must have been the colour of the hair and the colour of, of the eyes. And the people with the same coloured eyes would have bred together, and the people with the same coloured hair would have bred together. So originally, we would have had people that that looked really specifically different. Each each caste in society would have looked really different. But then, uh, through invasions like with the Arabs, or through with breeding programs, because I, I do think they had breeding programs with the slaves, because your your Aboriginal slave, Aboriginal slave, would not have been capable of of he's not capable of doing the technical stuff that I think our ancestors would have wanted them to do. And uh, I, I do think that some of them would have tried breeding with them to raise uh, their intelligence to make a more intelligent slave. And I think this 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 happened. And then the same thing that happens now, where people play on the emotions and say, well, these people should be equal with us. They should be emancipated. They should be given civil rights. This was done to um, these uh, non-white bastard slaves and they were put on an equal footing and then introduced that tainted blood into the into uh, the the nobles and the aristocracy and that, and that's when the society fell and that's what happened in india with with the mingling of the castes and you can hear about there's a there's a book i think it's by a chap called ariel that was written about the same time as um the negro a beast in the image of god uh, this chap, Ariel, he wrote about this, and he's talking about how these Negroes were used as slaves in um, Babylon and in, and in Babel, used to build these big cities that, that we still see the remains of today. They used these slaves to do this, but they bred with them to try and raise their intelligence level so, so that they could make a better slave. Uh, and that introduced it into it as well. So you had, you had invasions like what's happening with the Arabs, and you also had our own weaknesses, I think, our own weakness for wanting to create a better slave, which, again, caused this race-mixed amalgamation. And then you have the DNA people that will now look at something and say, well, that's Semitic, or that, that's got Arab blood in it, whereas Arab is, is mixed in the, in the first place. It's not, a, it's not an original type. It's not a specific type. It's like when they call people Latinos. They're calling them that name after a linguistic term, Latin, by the language they have, because they don't have a common biological heritage. 
And the Arabs don't have a common biological heritage. They have a, a mixed up, mingled up heritage from where they were living at the uh, cross points of the world and where every, every, all the trade routes, the cross point of the trade routes. So everything, all different races and different peoples from all over the world would, would, would coalesce there and congregate there and, and the, the uh, lower types would, would interbreed with them all and get these Mongol races. And that's your origin of your, your Arab race. And now that's coming into our countries here now. And the last, the last refuge that we've got is Europe, where we managed to get away from all of this, where they, where they don't like the cold. We managed to get away from them. And now they're, they're coming in here amongst us, mongolizing us. And it's hard for our people to tell the difference between us and them. And then you get people saying, well, the white people with brown eyes, they're not white because they've got honey-colored eyes. You know, the Negroes and the Arabs can have all different kinds of eyes. But white people have honey-coloured eyes. They have honey-coloured eyes, green eyes, blue eyes, all different coloured eyes. And it's only through having these Mongols among us that, that um, people get wary of seeing white people with dark eyes. And that can be very upsetting for um, white people that, that are dark hair and dark eyes. And, and they get people saying, oh, well, you must be a mulatto, or you, or you must have Negro blood in you, or oh, you've got curly hair, you must have Negro blood in you. And that's not the way, not the way it is. And I think, it's a, I think it's a very important point that we've brought up here, Bill, that um, what, when these early writers were talking about white people, it was relative to other white people. It certainly wasn't relative to the beasts. Because these Negroes, these other creatures, that's what they were. They were just classed as beasts. They weren't written about. These Negroes never had any history. They were just wild beasts. You had beasts of burden, which was your oxen, your donkeys, and your horses. And you had beasts of the field, which was a Negro, to go and pick the fruit. And you worked to work in the field, to do the, to do the menial tasks. And whatever country the white man got to, there was Aborigines there that he could use to work in the fields. And it was through weakness and, and breeding with these Aborigines, trying to raise their IQ, that created these, these amalgamation with our own race and ended up wiping out so many of our own nations and empires, I think. That's what the evidence leads me to believe, anyway. Well, well let me just clarify that the original Arabs, the, the word Arab is a Hebrew word that means mixed, and, and the original... Arabs were the Canaanites who mixed with other Canaanite and, and Edomite and even white tribes in the Arabian Peninsula, which at one time was white and it was a lot more fertile than it is today. It used to have rivers and streams and, and be able to support flocks, huge flocks. The, um, the, the, People of that area, especially the Canaanites and the Edomite merchants who were related to today's Jews, they are the first ones who started dealing in black slaves from sub-Saharan Africa. And there's historical evidence that Clifton Emmerheiser recently had, had rediscovered because it's been known before, but it's just obscure. There's historical evidence that it was these Arabs these Edomite and Canaanite traders who had been exporting these black African slaves all the way as far as Malaysia, the Philippines, and China. 
Southeast Asia, and India as long ago as 700 B.C. They were importing Negroes into Southeast Asia and the South Pacific Islands, and they exported Islam eventually all the way to the Philippines. And, and they've left their own Canaanite blood in all of these places. So, so none of these people are, are, are pure by any sense of the word. The, um, this leads me to discuss um, what is white in the world of bastards. Identity Christians... And, and I'll gladly take any remarks you may have on this, identity Christians should accept anyone who is apparently white, who identifies as white, and who accepts the gospel of Christ as being white. But it takes a greater than average knowledge of history and scripture to accept Christian identity. So we cannot expect all whites who first hear it to do so. And most of them will never do so because they just think we're nuts. It's so contrary to everything they've learned in the world. Therefore, identity Christians should also accept as white anyone who, not having an identity Christian understanding of scripture, is nevertheless apparently white and identifies as white so long as they do not openly oppose our message. Because these lines can be so complicated in today's world with all of its various competing philosophies, then for the purpose of the problems which we are trying to address here, we should define our expectations for our fellow whites, whether they profess to be Christian or not, in the simplest terms possible. And to me, those terms are best represented by what we may call positive Christianity and white exclusivity. Positive Christianity is a Christianity that demands that each member of the group the, Christian, the white group, the Christian group, work towards the common benefit of all the members of the group. Identity Christians and white nationalists alike should understand that whites must serve whites to benefit other whites exclusively. Therefore, no white nationalist should ever oppose that idea, and instead he should seek to assist it, whether or not they understand our Christian position. Furthermore, any white nationalist should be able to agree with Christian identity not only on the very basic necessity of white exclusivity, but also the absolute necessity of basic Christian morals. Even if they don't agree with, with, with Christ, the Bible, they should agree on white exclusivity and the necessity of basic Christian morals because I don't expect them to always understand us as far as Christ in the Bible. If a white nationalist cannot accept the need for basic Christian morals, then he needs to be cast aside, because in reality, he is actively against the interest of whites. Anyone who would steal from or do harm to other whites, or who would commit adultery or fornication, which includes both sodomy and race-mixing, miscegenation, does not belong in white nationalism, never mind Christian identity. Therefore, anyone who would do any of those things cannot be accepted even by 
white nationalists. These simple terms are really only what Christian identity should require as common ground for communicating with other whites. It is the same simple concepts upon which national socialism was constructed. On these terms, on these terms alone, that we need, we require Christian morality, and that that, that we seek a world that's exclusive to whites, on these terms alone, anyone who openly opposes the Christian identity message should be treated like a Jew, even if he is not a Jew, because he is acting against his fellow whites. One cannot truly be a white nationalist and act against the well-being of fellow whites. These are not grounds for total harmony, but they are grounds for mutual respect and coexistence with whites of diverse backgrounds and opinions. Yet they are the minimum grounds we require if we are going to stop attacking one another to the glee of the Jew. White nationalists who attack identity Christians must understand that we are not going to go away. You are not going to prevail over us because our mind is not going to change. And therefore, by attacking us, those white nationalists are not doing anything for whites or anything for white nationalism. We sincerely believe that we are on the path which to us is the way and the only way, and our profession is not a faith in numbers. We don't care about your numbers. Our profession is a faith that relies on one, and that's all we need. In fact, white nationalists who attack identity Christians are only making themselves look stupid because we know better than they do about what we believe. They only tell us what they hear from the Jews about the scripture. And we do not accept any of their silly and childish claims about what we know to be true. So that's my opinion of white nationalists and how identity Christians should treat them and and work with them or not work with them. And, And I have more to say, but I'll give it a break for you, Sven. I think that's great, Bill. Yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, very, very, uh, very well put, actually. Uh, I think that um, sums it all up, really. I mean, so long as people are putting, white people are putting other white people first, and they insist and they agree on the Christian morals, I think you define them there well. I would add um, against usury as well. And it's all just basically the, all the principles that, that national socialism was built upon. Uh, and as far as identifying people as people as white, I, mean, I, I think if people can, people will say, "How do I know I'm white?" I, mean, I think if people can blush, then they're they're white. I've only ever heard of one person say that they've ever met anyone who wasn't white that could blush, and I, I'm not so certain that they were blushing. I mean, blushing is, is a powerful sense of shame and embarrassment that causes your cheeks to inflame red. And it's a sense of shame and embarrassment that comes with it. It's not just flushed cheeks. It's not just having red cheeks after having a drink. Because this is, this is how Adam was defined. And I don't think God would have left us without a definition of what was white and what wasn't. And he defined Adam as, as being able to go red in the face. 
and it's written about in the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, the Spirit of Truth, which causes your, your cheeks to burn red. So I think if people are worried about if they're white or what they've got in their ancestry, I don't think they should be taking DNA tests. I think they should be thinking, well, can I blush? You may not have blushed for a long time, but I'm sure you would remember it if you, when you did. You, know, you haven't blushed since you were a child. You, you, would, you would remember that, that you were capable of blushing. I think that's that's a definition that people could stick with is is if they can blush. I think they know that they haven't got anything hidden in their in their ancestry. And apart from that, if people look white and they and they're acting white, then we need to accept them because obviously we can't tell whether they can blush or not. But if somebody wants to know that, because I've had people ask ask me this, and the thing is, if they're going to, they can, they've got two choices. Then, if they can't blush, they can either lie to themselves and lie to everybody else. And and, and uh, deceive people and deceive themselves, or they, or they can be honest about it and uh, and go off and, and do something else instead instead of white nationalism. Go, go and support whatever group it is that they, they originally belonged to. And I think that's that's the only way to do it. And if people can can blush, then you know they should be certain. Yeah, you know I'm white and support white people, and can support Christian identity. This is, I mean, why would you want to pretend to be into Christian identity if you knew you couldn't blush? You, you would know that um, uh, it wasn't for you. You would know that none of the scriptures in it were, were for you. The only reason somebody would stay in them would be to try and subvert it. And that would then become obvious if they were trying to subvert it, because they would be trying to twist the scripture. There are definitely some people on, pretending to be Christian identity that have no shame. Oh, Definitely. I'd like to discuss briefly how I believe white nationalists and identity Christians alike can properly cope with ethnicity in Europe and in America. Because it's, this is debated all the time. It's ridiculous that this is debated. And, and it's only debated because some people have unseemly lust or far too much pride, one or the other. There is no single white nation. There's no single white ethnicity. There's no such thing as a single white nation, and we don't want one. We should not merely celebrate and defend being white and our white heritage and our Christian culture, but we should celebrate and defend each individual white nation distinctly and, and advocate their ability and, and, and their right to remain separate among white nations. Identity Christians and white nationalists alike should realize that it is not good for our people to break down the barriers between perceptibly white nations and mold them all together in a single lump. A true white nationalist should agree that every white nation has its own distinct characteristics and culture rather than lumping them together. And in that manner, we should appreciate and seek to preserve the ethnic integrity of each and every one of them. Therefore, white nationalists should also be ethnic nationalists. If an Italian is proud of his heritage, he should seek to be with Italians. He should seek to marry an Italian. If an Italian is not proud of his heritage, he or she would be better off to marry a nigger or a Jew than a German or a Swede. An Italian forcing himself on a Swede, or a Frenchman forcing himself on a Dane, 
or an Irishman forcing himself on a check is acting against the interests of the other white nation, and therefore it is acting against the interests of whites in general. It's that easy. For, for, for centuries in medieval Europe, whites in various principalities didn't hate each other, but they understood that they should marry somebody from their own little county or their own little village. And here, our biggest problem becomes manifest, and that is how whites look at marriage today. And most so-called white nationalists, who supposedly reject the Jews, have yet accepted the Jewish ideal of so-called romantic love which basically boils down to the notion that one can marry whatever makes his testosterone boil. And that is bullshit. That's lust. That's not love. That's a Jewish ideal. That's not an Aryan ideal. An Aryan ideal is that you marry to perpetuate your people. Not because something makes your pecker hard. Real love requires one to put his own people before himself. And that's a Christian principle. That's also a national socialist principle. So it should be a white nationalist principle. Therefore, having real love, the white nationalist should want to marry a woman from his own people. Now, this is a problem for many Americans especially, but it's not a problem which cannot be overcome for most of us if one looks at it properly in Europe. Because for so long, among the various tribes, there was isolation and very little interbreeding. Many of the principalities developed a specialized population, which manifested a homogeneity of characteristics that made them distinguishable in great degree from people of other places in Europe, even if they had a common origin and a common history in the more distant past. This is a process of specification or speciation within a race, and it happens in the human as well as in the animal and plant kingdoms. In America, and to a slightly lesser degree in Canada, centuries of speciation in Europe have been undone as the Irish, Scots, French, English, Germans, Dutch, who first settled here, began intermingling at an early time in our history. This does not make these people non-white. It does not make them mutts, but rather it has created new speciation, new ethnicities of whites. However, the problem was exacerbated as Southern and Eastern Europeans, and especially Jews, Jews began to be admitted to America in large numbers in the late 19th century. There were some thousands of Jews here earlier, but from that time there were hundreds of thousands of Jews here, and even more Arab Europeans or non-white Europeans. However, there are plenty of original stock Americans and Canadians, and they should stick to that stock, while people with Eastern European or Southern European blood, whether they are, whether they are perceived to be white or not, doesn't matter. People of Eastern or Southern European blood should do likewise, should find somebody of their own stock to mate with. 
And that's the even if you you, you don't do it out of out of um, out of a, a necessity to not pollute the blood of the other races. Don't do it for that reason, but do it for the will to preponderate your own stock. And that's the natural role of marriage in the history of man. If a white nationalist is truly what he or she claims to be, then advocating advocating anything different is actually working against the interests of your race. So in the end, it should not matter whether the Dane or the Irishman thinks that the Italians are white or not, or, or whether the French are suspect or not, or the Dutch or, or any other group in, in Europe that has ethnic problems with miscegenation in the past. It doesn't matter. We would say that there are many Italians that are white, even if the odds are smaller the further south into Italy one goes. And the same can be said for Spain and even for France. The coastline regions of southern France are not without their African influences, but rather if each European respected and, and, and had pride for all of the white ethnicities of Europe, then each would seek to maintain true white nationalism, which has to start with ethnic nationalism. And each would readily agree that they should mate within their own general type. It's that simple. With all of this in mind, identity Christians and white nationalists alike will learn the easy way or the hard way that non-whites are not people. And this is something else that white nationalists and even identity Christians are constantly and ridiculously bickering over. Non-whites are not people. It's that simple. Non-whites are animals who would destroy everything white and civilized just as a bear or a pack of wild hyenas would destroy a white child, or an entire homestead. Therefore, whites should be absolutely apathetic, to say the least, to any of the plight of non-whites at all. Whites should be as apathetic to the plight of Jews, Negroes, or Arabs as they are to roaches in a burning building. In this respect, Jared Taylor, David Duke, and all of the other clowns in the WN circus have made themselves no different than Al Sharpton if he were wearing whiteface. David Duke is Al Sharpton in whiteface. Whites should not be found competing with respect for non-whites. Fuck non-whites. While non-whites are murdering, raping, and pillaging whites at an astounding rate, David Duke and Jared Taylor want their respect. Rather, whites should be found putting non-whites in their appropriate place, in the grave or back to the desert hell from which they came. And we do not care what happens to them. So we have no words, no bargains, no fellowship, no brotherhood, and no discourse with non-whites. Non-whites think you're a fool for talking to them because they're going to have your ass tomorrow. And David Duke just don't get it. He's a clown. This all leads to the idea that somehow the non-white races are pure. 
And, and the only things which is sure about that idea is bullshit. Africans were being introduced by Arab merchants into all of Southeast Asia as far back as 700 B.C. Sub-Saharan Africans, the Negroes, the blacks, might be heavily speciated, but there are clearly multiple distinguishable species in Africa, pygmies and mandingos, bushmen and hottentots, absolutely different species which have been kidnapping and raping each other's women for millennia, just like the aboriginal South Americans. The Asiatics and South Americans alike have been mixed with the blood of whites and Negroes from Africa for many centuries. Whites have a presence in what is now China for over 3,500 years and have been absorbed into the populations there. Arabs have been Arabs have infected all of the islands of the South Pacific and the coasts of Asia and the sub-Saharan and, and, I'm sorry, the Indian subcontinent with their polluted blood as well as their ridiculous religion. There are no pure Indians and there are no pure Chinamen. There are no pure Negroes and anyone who thinks as much is absolutely stuck on stupid. All non-whites are mongrel animals and we should treat them with total apathy. We should never have a dialogue with them. You would not talk to your dog about what we're having for dinner. When you talk to your dog about what you're having for dinner, you're going to end up on the menu. I mentioned that, Bill. I think you've got, you got it all spot on there. It's just pointless talking to them. I, I get, I get them tr trying to talk to me, uh, trying to say, trying to get dis discuss Christian identity. What would be the point? What, what would be the point? It's got nothing to do with them. There's no point discussing anything with them. Nothing about social life. Nothing about politics. Nothing about economics. They, they should be treated like dogs and just ignored. We should have total apathy. We don't have to go out and start killing them. They're going to kill each other. There's absolute certainty of that. They are going to destroy themselves, but we should have total apathy for all non-whites. Just put them off. We should never have intercourse with them. We should never argue with them over economics, over politics in our own nations, or over what's for dinner. We just shouldn't do it because we'll end up as dinner. It's all casting pearls before swine, isn't it? It's the same thing. Cast pearls before swine and, and they'll turn around and rend you. Absolutely. So, so we have David Duke and Jared Taylor, Taylor out entertaining non-whites and making alliances with them. And these men are no better than Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. They're clowning us. They're clowning race-conscious Americans for dollars. That's exactly what they're doing. I think the only thing you can positively say about people like David Duke and, and Joe Taylor is that people aren't aware of the, of the race question come to find us through them because they hear the soft version of it through them and then they get to, get to hear the uh, more truthful version of it and then eventually they find their way to us. I mean, when I was first um, coming, waking up to the racial question, it was through people like Jared Taylor and David Duke. So they do have a purpose. But it is, as you say, they shouldn't be um, 
humour in these other races. They, they shouldn't be sucking up to them. You know, you see people going on press TV and, and things like this. It, it's just ridiculous. Press TV just just this week are, are alleging that there's a uh, that there's there's a conspiracy, a white nationalist conspiracy, and that half the police force has been infiltrated by neo-Nazi groups that are now running the police. This is headline news with press TV. And there is there are certain certain white advocates that uh, go on press TV and give them interviews. We can only wish press TV and and um uh, okay, RT and Russia Today and and press TV are both arms of Putin's propaganda machine, which um, are designed to sow discord and unrest in the West and and attract people with with, um, with, with certain anti-Western government sympathies to, um, to propagandize those people against the government even further and hope to radicalize them in the future. That, that's why RT exists. That's why Press TV exists. It, it's um, basically Boris Putin um, and, and his administration seeking through the Iranians who they help finance and, and other means, seeking to, um, to propagandize apathetic Westerners. And I don't blame them for trying to take advantage of the internet to do that, and and to reach whites who who might be um who might be disenchanted with with, with American imperialism. But I don't know if we want to replace American imperialism with, with with Russian imperialism or with Chinese imperialism. It, it's I mean we're going to end up slaves to one jeweler or another, one way or another. So that's a topic, topic for different a different Sunday afternoon, Stan. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. thank you for joining me. Uh, I'm sorry I ranted so long in the end there, but uh, I, there's just some points I just had to make, and and um, I appreciate you being here. No, that was an excellent rant, Bill. I agree with everything you said. I think you put it really well, clearly put, and I think it needed to be said. And I think you put it very well. So yeah, thanks thanks for saying it. Hopefully a couple of white nationalists and maybe a few identity Christians will get something out of it. Thank you for being here, Sven. Praise Yahweh. We will be back at the end of um, June. I'll be on the road for the next three or four weeks, and I just won't be able to be here. And, and we'll have a program date for our next program within the next two or three weeks. Thank you, Sven. Praise Yahweh. Thanks, Phil. And good night.